All right. Kids can now be dismissed to Children's Church. I know, so exciting. You guys like my fancy new podium? I just walked in and this was here, waiting for me. Uh, I don't know what I did to deserve it, but here we are. (laughs) So, uh, we are now in the third week of a four-week series called The Love Bug. Uh, Let me just briefly recap where we have been thus far. Uh, In week one of this series, we talked about a computer virus called the love bug. And this computer virus hit over 50 million computers worldwide, which at the time, in the year 2000, was 1 in 10 computers. So 10% of all the computers in the world were hit with this virus called the love bug. And whereas previous uh, viruses um, targeted only the computer, the love bug was unique in that it was the first computer virus to target the user of the computer uh, through what's called social engineering. That means that this uh, virus enticed the computer user to do the dirty work for it without them actually knowing. Um, The virus was attached to an email called love letter. And the email simply stated, kindly check this love letter uh, attached from me. And there was an email attachment uh, that was called loveletter.txt.vbs. Now, if you weren't here for that sermon, and this all sounds very, very ridiculous to our modern ears, and you're thinking to yourself, why would anyone be dumb enough to ever open an email attachment like that? That's so stupid. Well, I encourage you to go back and and listen to that podcast. Um, We talked a little bit about the fact that it was a different world back then, and we were much more naive, and our relationship to technology was a lot more pure. But what's so significant about that particular story is that when you look back at the success of that virus, uh, the experts say that it wasn't because the virus itself was written in a clever way or that the code was uh, very difficult to crack. It's, it was successful because it tapped into a universal need. That universal need is the desire to be loved. What we want more than anything else in the world is to be fully loved. But one of the biggest obstacles to being fully loved is being fully known. And we are afraid of being known. We're afraid that if we're fully known, if people really knew us, if God really knew us, if others really knew us, they wouldn't love us. We'd be rejected. So we looked at Psalm 139, which shows very, very clearly that God knows absolutely everything. Everything about us, even more than we even know. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. Um... For some of you, that may be easier to count than others. Some of us have more hair than anyone else here. But God knows the number of the hairs on our heads. In spite of his vast, limitless knowledge of us, somehow, he still loves us just the same. We are fully known, and we are also fully loved. Last week, we looked at the fact that uh, we also try to put up obstacles to being known. We're afraid of being known, so we do all that we can to make sure that we aren't. We are experts at crafting facades, at putting our best foot forward, uh, at making ourselves look like we are put together. 
But scripture tells us that when we humble ourselves and invite God and invite others in, at that point we can experience his love in a way that is not otherwise possible. And so today we will look at the role that the church plays in experiencing the love of God. Uh, Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Mike Rowe. Okay, probably half of you, that's good. Uh, Maybe you've heard his podcast, Uh, perhaps you've seen him on Ford truck commercials, Uh, but more than likely, if you're one of those people that raised your hand and you've heard of Mike Rowe, it's probably because of his show, Dirty Jobs. Uh, The show Dirty Jobs ran on the Discovery Channel for eight seasons, beginning in 2003 and ending in 2012. In this show, Roe spends each episode as an apprentice alongside people that have the most dangerous, disgusting, strange, messy, and of course, dirty jobs in the whole world. Um, After Discover decided to not renew Dirty Jobs, he continued the same show on a different channel on CNN uh, under the name Somebody's Gotta Do It. And that ran until 2018. And he's currently in talks with another network to basically continue airing a very similar plot. So all in all, he has experienced over 300 of the worst jobs in the world. Appalling real-life jobs that every day real people actually work uh, in the United States and elsewhere. So if you do not like your job, If you go to work and you think to yourself, gosh, my job sucks, be prepared to be thankful that you are not in one of these professions. For example, uh, one of the ones that he did was bat cave scavenger. Okay, so this is working with a biologist um, to essentially check on the bats in a bat cave. But part of that means wading through knee-deep bat droppings, guano in order to check on these bats Um, and being in very tight spaces in the dark. So if you're claustrophobic or you don't like poop, well, this is not the job for you. Uh, Another is cattle inseminator. I bet you never thought you'd hear hear those words in a sermon. Um, This involves impregnating cattle by hand, okay? Uh, A gloved hand, but hand nonetheless. And so the job of the cattle inseminator is to impregnate the cattle. (laughs) Not one that I would ever like to have. Uh, Another one was for a company called Skulls Unlimited. Uh, This job involves cleaning the skulls and other skeletal parts, the, the skeletons of dead animals, sometimes also dead humans. Uh, to be repurposed for other uses uh, later on, whether that's display or science or whatever. Um, And so this involves boiling off flesh, using beetles to eat off the remaining parts. Uh, He said that the smell is absolutely one of the worst things he's ever experienced. Uh, Another one was pig slop processor. Uh, And this job involves taking unconsumed food from restaurants and buffets, and just reprocessing it in order for it to be pig food. Part of this involves mixing it by hand. I have no idea why. There should be machines for that. 
All of these sound terrible. But when he was asked, what are the dirtiest jobs that he has ever done? Uh, Here are the ones that he listed as the worst. Uh, The first was snake researcher. Okay, off the bat, this is the worst for me. I don't have to read any further to know, no thank you. Uh, But he worked with a team on Lake Erie. And what they do is they catch large snakes, and then they squeeze the snakes to make them vomit. And then they can analyze the vomit to see what the snakes have been eating. See if they're eating the right stuff, I guess. Not only does this involve catching snakes, and then making the snakes vomit, and then also examining vomit... He says it also involves being bitten a lot. On that particular day where he was working this job, he was bitten over three dozen times by the snakes, who, as you can imagine, don't like being squeezed until they vomit. Uh, No thanks. The next one, he said, was one of the worst, is a shark suit tester. Obviously, from the title of this uh, job, you know exactly what it is. Apparently, the only way to really test to see if a shark suit is functioning is to put one on and then jump into a feeding frenzy with actual sharks and let them bite you. No thank you. He said that the bruises that day that he got were unlike anything he could have ever imagined. Uh, next is sewer inspector. Sewer inspector. Uh, it, is ex- it is as disgusting as you can possibly imagine. When heavy rain hits a city, that affects the sewer system. And so a sewer inspector has to go into the sewer to ensure that drainage and infrastructure are all working properly. Um, one of the jobs that they do is also checking the sewage pumps. And God forbid a sewage pump is not working. Because if a sewage pump is not working, the sewage pump has to be lifted out of the sewer by a crane. But in order for the crane to be connected to the pump, someone has to go into the sewage to connect the crane hook to the pump. Which involves, quite literally, swimming in sewage. Then Roe was asked what the number one worst experience was during his time on Dirty Jobs. And uh, it's probably better that you hear it straight from him. Uh, Josh, if you wouldn't mind playing this video. This is Mike Roe on a podcast telling us about the worst experience that he had on Dirty Jobs. So we went to investigate Mrs. Frazier's experience. 
exploding toilet um, the next day. Great band, by the way. Dude, I can't even tell you what, when I walked into that basement, the, every, it, it was like a horrible glazed donut, right? Every single square inch of the basement was filled with sewage, ostensibly from the people down the street. Right. And when you see, when you see your wedding photo, for instance, or your, or your family photo, covered in the filth, that just 24 hours ago was inside your neighbor. <laughs> it's a very personal and very horrifying thing. And I spent 12 hours with this cleanup crew, crew the guys from Omega Cleanup, making Mrs. Frazier's basement look better. Better. There's and no coming back from that all the way. You're not going to fix it, right? <laughs> you're, you're not going to fix it. But suddenly you find yourself in this impossibly relative world where better just means getting most of other people's Appalling, right? He said we live in this relative world where better is just getting most of your neighbor's poop out of your view. Now, I'm sure every single one of us has complained about our jobs at various times. um, But I'm willing to bet that none of us have experienced anything remotely close to swimming in other people's filth, right? Of course, if you're a parent, uh, you may have experienced something similar with exploding diapers. And you parents-to-be in the room, well, you're in for it. Uh, We've been there, done that. But listen, the reason why I bring this stuff up is to admonish us that as the church, as the body of Christ, in a spiritual sense, we have an equally dirty job, an equally dirty calling. You see, one of the chief ways that we are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, in a spiritual sense, is to be knee-deep in our neighbor's mess. In fact, it is impossible to do and to be all that God has called us to be and do without getting our spiritual hands dirty. So, what I'd like to show us first in the scriptures today is how willing Jesus was to humble himself to the lowest level in order to show his love. And then I'd like to follow that up with his command that we follow his example. So, if you've got your Bible, turn to John 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 35, and the words will be behind me on the screen as well. John 13, verses 1 through 35. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments... And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured, it into, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, You have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have just done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said that to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, what we have just read in John 13 is one of the most shocking, mind-blowing, unexpected chapters in the entire Bible. When this chapter was read in the first century to the Jews, they would have stared with their jaw to the floor, looking at each other in disgust, asking He did what? It would be like our reaction to seeing Mike Rowe talking about the dirty jobs that he uh, performs. When we hear about him being in a basement cleaning up other sewage, and we go, oh, that is awful. That is the type of reaction that the Jews would have had in hearing this chapter. It It would have shaken them to the core. It would have made them uncomfortable. And we'll take a closer look at why. 
This passage begins with a very strange statement in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, uh, He loved them until the end. Uh, Verse 2 it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, In some of your translations as you're reading, perhaps in some of your translations it says, He now showed them the full extent of his love. He now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, if I were to take a poll in this room and ask the question, at what point does Jesus show the full extent of his love? Most of us probably would say, at the cross. Most of us would probably say, when Jesus is being flogged and whipped and spit on and then subsequently crucified, that is where Jesus shows the full extent of his love. But John says it here in chapter 13, that here Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. What does he mean by that? One of the things that we have to know is that John chapters 13 through 21, through the the last uh, part of the book of John, these chapters are taken as a single narrative. It is one story. This is the Passion Week. And here is the beginning. And so, chapter 13 is the beginning of the end. It's the first step toward the cross. It is the first step down that road. And so, this is the first step in showing the full extent of his love. But we often skip over this to get to the really good stuff. This foot washing business seems very strange to us because this is not something we do in our culture uh, all that often. And so we want to get to the juicy details that really matter. Things like his arrest, his crucifixion, his, of course, resurrection. But like I said, the readers in the first century would have stopped right here, minds blown, wondering what on earth this guy was doing. So we have to examine a little bit about why. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Point number one, Christ's love is shockingly humble. Now last week, one of the things that we talked about was our need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Uh, In this um, uh, passage in 1 Peter that we looked at last week, where we talked about how we put up these Potemkin villages, we put up these facades, and and God calls us, humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Uh, Now just out of curiosity, was anyone able to work Potemkin villages into a conversation this week? You were? It was on Jeopardy? Sweet. That's awesome. And the champions thing? Nice. The, the goat, Ken Jennings. All right. Well, I'm sure that if you were watching that episode, you would have gotten it right thanks to the sermon that you listened to last week. So you are one step closer to being Ken Jennings. Thanks to coming to this church. You're welcome. Anyway, we talked about how we need to be humble. Here, Jesus shows us exactly how humble he is willing to be. And it's significant that God does not call us to do anything that he is also not willing to do himself first. In the context of this passage, we have to remember that the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political leader. They expected him to be an actual 
king on earth. They expected him to come in riding on a horse to rescue them. He would be their supreme leader. He would trample their enemies under his feet. He would take the Roman Empire and crush it underfoot. They expected that the Messiah was going to be King Leonidas, Maximus Aurelius, Alexander the Great, all wrapped up in one. The Messiah, great in power, will reign over all forever. Now, ultimately, Jesus does do that. And if we read the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, we do find Jesus riding in on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, slaying the enemies. But here, he's not there yet. Here in John chapter 13, he shows his supremacy by doing the most unexpected possible thing, and that is by washing his people's feet. And that, to the Jews, would have been the ultimate plot twist. Here's what you have to understand about feet, uh, and by extension, the washing of feet. Many of you would agree that feet are gross, probably. Uh, Raise your hand if you're grossed out by feet. Okay, a few of you. Uh, Polls suggest that most Americans find feet to be disgusting. Uh, But let's be entirely real here. Our feet are among the cleanest feet in the world. Uh, Americans, on average, shower four times a week. There are some weeks, of course, where you think to yourself, when is the last time I showered? We're not talking about that. We're We're talking about the stats, which say about four times a week we shower. And most of us, other than some weirdos that I know and love, most of us wear shoes wherever we go. Uh, And we walk on fairly clean sidewalks. Our feet, by modern standards, are quite clean. By the standards of of history, our feet are practically pristine. You see, uh, our feet are not even worth comparing to the feet that you would find in the first century. In the first century, people didn't have Under Armour shoes. They had very primitive sandals. Uh, Not awesome Birkenstocks either. I'm talking leather straps and barely covering anything. The roads that they walked on uh, were not clean by any stretch of the imagination. Most of the places that they walked were dirt or mud. And um, there were also animals that were going on these same streets. And so you can imagine what else filled the average road. Oh, and by the way, back then, people didn't shower four times a week. The average person, especially if they were the normal uh, person in poverty, hardly ever bathed in their entire lives. I also have no idea when nail clippers were invented, Okay, so uh, the toenails that you might find in the first century were probably quite a spectacle as well. So you can imagine the disgusting, filthy, crusty hobbit feet that we're talking about in the first century. Okay? Now it was customary back then for a person's feet to be washed when they would attend a meal at someone's home. But who would have the unfortunate job of washing these disgusting hobbit feet? It would be a slave. But not just 
any slave. Not just any slave. It would be the slave that was the lowest on the totem pole. The lowliest servant. Only slaves would ever wash feet. You would never find someone who would wash feet that wasn't a slave. And even among the slaves, the worst slave that even the slaves themselves looked down upon, that would be the one who would wash feet. Now, among those slaves, it was only the Gentile slaves that would wash feet. No Jew ever, not even a Jewish slave, would wash feet. That was something that was too dishonorable. It was one of the dirtiest jobs in the ancient world. And so, the people who washed feet would be viewed even worse than we view sewer inspectors, like what Mike Rowe did. You see, we still regard sewer inspectors as people. Dirty, gross, very stinky people, but people nonetheless. But first century Jews would regard the foot washers as being less than human. They were cockroaches. They were garbage themselves. So who is the last person, the last person anyone would ever expect to be washing the feet of the guests? The Messiah. (laughs) Any Jew, but a rabbi, but a Messiah? That would be the most unexpected moment in Jewish history. This was literally the grossest, the most dishonorable, most humiliating job in the ancient world. And yet, here we find the master, the CEO, washing and scrubbing the toilets by hand. It is almost impossible to try to wrap our minds around something like that. This, this is God, okay? The God of the universe, the God who created everything that there is just by speaking words. This is the God who holds the entire world in his hands. This is the one who sustains the universe every single day. This is the one whose power and whose majesty are far beyond our comprehension and are impossible for us to grasp. This is the one whose, whose holiness is so powerful and bright that Moses could only see the trail of his robe because if he saw God face to face, it would kill him. This is the God that the scriptures tell us rules over every kingdom and every nation to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the king of the universe. Think about the stars. Think about all that is out in space, the vast expanses of the universe. And think about the God who, again, only used words to spin all of the cosmos into existence. The God that we see later on in Revelation who is worshipped by angels who fall down before him crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as they worship, the temple fills with smoke and earthquakes shake the pillars of the foundation with pure, intense, holy majesty. That God didn't just come down to be among us. 
That God didn't just leave heaven to be alongside us. That great, powerful, majestic, holy God laid aside his outer garments, wrapped a towel around his waist, got on his knees, and washed the feet of his disciples. There's no words that can adequately describe that level of humility. There's no way that we can paint a picture of just how humble that is. Just how humble the God is that we serve. And again, the readers of this passage in the first century would have been awestruck. And we should be no less awestruck because this is how humble our Christ is. But perhaps the second point is even more incredible. Point number two Christ's love is surprisingly extensive. It should blow our minds that we find Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It, it should blow, the, blow our minds that he is washing anyone's feet. They should be the ones washing his feet, if anything. But what is even more surprising, what's even more mind-blowing than this, is that he doesn't just wash the feet of his disciples. He doesn't just wash the feet of these men who love him and serve him. Jesus actually washes the feet of his betrayer. Jesus washes the feet of the man who's going to turn him in. Verse 2 tells us that Judas had already decided what he was going to do. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He has already decided. Okay, He's already spoken to the chief priest. He's already put a plan in action. Judas is already a betrayer. But even prior to this passage, in earlier passages, we learn that Judas was already unfaithful. He had been, up to this point, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a thief. Uh, One of the things that we read in chapter 12 is that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and Mary anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And Judas raises a stink about it. He says, "How, how dare Jesus waste this? Why didn't we sell the proceeds and and give the money to the poor? He's trying to sound like he's benevolent. But verse 6 of chapter 12 tells us, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is the one who's taking up the collection, and he's stealing the tithes. (laughs) He's counting the money and stealing and helping himself to whatever is there. So even though he's trying to look like he's benevolent, he's already a thief. So he's been a traitor up to this point already for a long time. And he is one of these people that is following Jesus for only one reason. The one reason that he's following Jesus, again, is because he wants Jesus to be the political leader that's going to set them free from the Roman Empire. He wants Jesus to show off his power and smite every Roman. And when Jesus rises to power, Judas wants to make sure that he's on the right team. He wants to make sure that he's right next to Christ as Christ comes in majesty. 
He's going to make sure I'm going to be a member of the royal cabinet. He is jockeying for personal gain. He's not interested in a spiritual Messiah. He is only interested in what this guy can gain him. Which is why he ends up selling Jesus out for only 30 pieces of silver. For reference, 30 pieces of silver was about a month's worth of wages for a minimum wage laborer. So in today's terms, we're talking like 600 bucks. For $600, Judas sells Jesus out. He doesn't care at all about this guy. He has such a low value of him, he takes such a small price. His only care is what Jesus can get him. We find out later on in the passage in John 13 that Jesus knows this about Judas. I mean, that shouldn't catch us by surprise considering that Jesus knows everything. Remember what we talked about in week one of the series in Psalm 139, that God knows every thought that we're thinking. Even before a word is on our mouth, he already knows what we're going to say. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. This is not catching him off guard. He knows that Judas is going to be the one to do it. And we know from so many other places in the Gospels, specific examples where Jesus reads people's minds, where he knows exactly what they're thinking. So, it is no surprise to Jesus what's going on here. He knows that Judas is an uncaring, selfish, self-centered snake. Jesus is reaching into Lake Erie knowing that the snake is going to bite him. But what's so surprising is that armed with that knowledge, knowing that full well, Jesus still washes Judas' feet. He still does it anyway. He shows this same incredible, humble, selfless love to a man he knows is about to stab him in the back. If we aren't blown away by his humility already, this should seal the deal. After all, How do we treat people who are enemies to us? How do we treat people who have hurt us, people who stab us in the back, especially if we knew that they were going to? Do you think we would be showing selfless love to that person? Probably not. I think all of us could probably think of examples where we have wished harm on someone. Where Jesus in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount says that if you speak a terrible word to your brother, you're already a murderer in your heart. My friends, every single one of us is guilty of murdering a lot of people. Some of you, myself included, have murdered people in traffic every single day. People at work, customers that you interact with. I can think of people that I worked alongside that to this day, sometimes I have to struggle to not wish harm on them. But what does Jesus do? Jesus washes their feet. Can you imagine what this must have been like? Jesus is on his knees washing the grime from Judas' feet. Looking up into Judas' eyes, 
saying in his heart, I know what you're about to do, Judas, but I love you anyway. Later on in in verse 27, he says to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. But first, let me show you the full extent of my love. This, my friends, should shock us. But here's what else should shock us. We are a lot like Judas. We betray Jesus all the time. We serve other masters all the time. We deny him. We treat him like garbage. We fail him. We sin against him. We trade him for so little. We value other things more than we value him. And it should shock us that Jesus would love people like us. It is shocking that Jesus would love somebody like me. Enough to wash my feet. But that is exactly what Jesus does. And as we've been talking in this series, God knows everything there is to know about us. He knows every betrayal we have ever committed against him and he also knows about every betrayal that we're going to commit in the future. Betrayals that we don't even know about. I don't know what sins I'm going to commit tomorrow or the day after or the years thereafter. But Jesus does. Jesus already has a running list of every way that I am going to betray him in the rest of my life. But yet... Armed with that knowledge, Jesus shows the full extent of his love by getting down on his knees and washing the filth off of us. And unlike Mike Rowe in that video that we watched at the beginning, where he said about that giant poo-poo festival, there's no coming back from that. There's only making it look better. Unlike that, Jesus takes our filth upon himself in order to make us pure and holy and perfectly clean. I dare you to try to find that kind of love anywhere else. You can't. It's impossible. But like Peter, what we try to do is we try to push God away. We, we try to act like we're above that kind of love. When, when Peter says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus responds by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, Jesus is saying, unless you allow me to be what you cannot, unless you can trust in a humble Savior, unless you allow me to do what the Father has called me to do, you cannot have any part in this. Having your feet washed is almost as humbling as washing someone else's feet. It it is an incredibly intimate experience. Um, For uh, many years running, Allison and I were involved in a camp in Tennessee called Super Summer. Um, It was one of the best ministries we've ever been a part of. And one of our traditions every year on, on the last day of camp, we would have a foot washing service. Yeah, we actually did this. And... Uh, we washed teenagers' feet, and it was grimy. It was gross. But it was also one of the most incredible, humbling, awe-inspiring experiences of our lives. It, it's one that almost everyone says, that is a night I will never forget for the rest of my life. And to have your feet washed is, is almost as humbling as washing somebody else's feet. It, it's a bonding experience, and, and there's words of intimate friendship that are spoken in those moments. 
And Jesus says, unless you allow him to wash your feet, you have no share with him. See, we always want to earn our way to God. We want to show him how good we are. We want to heap up good works and religious offerings and memorize prayers all so that we can make it up to him and, and show, us, show him how good we are. And, and Jesus says to us, stop your striving, stop your proving, and let me wash your feet. Humble yourself in the face of his humility. Have you done that? Now that we've established, I think firmly, what kind of love Jesus has for us, now we have to move on to what we cannot miss, and that is what it means for us to show love. Let's look at verses 12 through 17. Uh, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So point number three, Christ's love beckons us to love like him. Part of the format of the show Dirty Jobs is that Mike Rowe always apprenticed in whatever dirty job he was performing. He was never the only one doing it. He was, he was an apprentice. There was someone who was experienced that was walking him through whatever job was on the docket. And Roe didn't just stand back and watch the person do the dirty job. The person would show him how to do it, and then he would actually do it himself. Roe was never a spectator on the show. He was an emulator. He would follow in the footsteps of the person under whom he was apprenticing. Jesus tells us clearly in these verses that he has set an example and that we also should do just as he has done. And man, this is really when things get difficult. See, like we've been talking about in this series, we're really good at building Potemkin villages. We're really good at putting up facades at making sure that that people don't know the extent of our personal messes. We try to make ourselves look like we are put together and everything is hunky-dory, sunshine and rainbows. When we walk into church and someone asks, how are you doing? Our response normally is, fine. Or if we're trying to sound spiritual, we'll say, blessed, better than I deserve. Under the hand of the Almighty. We don't want anyone knowing that the answer is, I am knee deep in crap right now. But there's also another side to this. See, we're, we're good at putting up a front, but we're also really good at avoiding other people's messes too. As much as we're putting up our own front, we're also trying to avoid uh, actually looking behind the propped up Potemkin villages that other people have put up. We know that other people are putting up a front because we're doing it too. 
There's this dance that we perform, and we know the parts, even though we're not saying anything about the parts that we're playing. Just as much as we don't want people knowing our mess, we don't want to get involved in other people's messes either. When someone asks me how I'm doing, and I say, fine, it's not only because I don't want them to know my mess, it's because I also know they don't really want to know the answer to this question. It's because we're so used to having surface level, superficial relationships in the church that we kind of figure other people don't really want our honesty. I mean, picture the conversation in the foyer. Imagine that someone says, how are you? And instead of saying fine, you give an honest answer and you say, terrible. I'm struggling with a lot of fear and doubt. A loved one has cancer. Right now it feels like my prayers are only hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. Is God even real? And you know what? Let me be honest. Other people's happiness is really grating on my nerves right now. Now imagine the look on the other person's face when you say that. See, that person expected that you were going to say, fine, and you could continue walking past each other in the hallway. But now there's this awkward silence, and there's eyes wide staring at you, and they go, oh, um, I'll pray for you. And then they try to get out of there as quickly as possible. Uh, Show of hands, anyone ever experienced anything like that before? Okay, I have. Catching people off guard, especially if it's someone that you're not close to, that's my favorite. And sometimes I've done it as a prank, and someone says, hey, buddy, how are you? And I'm like, everything sucks. How are you? And they're like, what? (laughs) Catches people really off guard. I did this at a grocery store one time. I admit I shouldn't have done this. The cashier was very cheery, and she was like, hi, sir, how are you? And I'm like, awful. And she was like, um... People don't know what to say when you give an honest answer. Um, Last week, at uh, the request of someone at work, I read this book called Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science by a guy named Mike McCard. The very quick gist of this book is that this guy, Mike McCarg, was raised in a Southern Baptist church, eventually grew up, became an elder, a Sunday school teacher, but then he began to wrestle with doubts about his faith. There was some difficult personal circumstances going on, so he started looking for answers in the Bible, wasn't finding the answers. In fact, what he was finding was a bunch of contradictions and holes and problems, and then he began to study science and became a scientist, and all these different things added more fuel to the fire until he became a full-blown atheist. Then through further study and wanting to have faith and having a pretty mystical experience, he came back to faith. And I use air quotes around the word faith uh, because his current faith looks nothing like what he had before and there's a lot of sort of new age mysticism that's mixed in. And I'm hoping and praying that his journey isn't over um, and that the Lord leads him all the way back. But it was a very interesting read in this book. But I'm bringing up this book because some of the things that he said in the book really spoke to me as a pastor. Um, The way that he spoke about the church, for example. 
He didn't dog the church. He didn't say negative things about the church, uh, especially the community that, that he was raised in. He said very positive things, but he was very honest about his experience as someone in the church struggling with doubt. He, uh, he felt very strongly that he needed to hide He felt very strongly that he needed to put on a mask, that he couldn't express how he was really feeling. Because if he did, he would be ostracized. There were well-meaning people that if he even showed a a crack, would tell him that Satan had a hold of him. And so he had to keep this mask on because people would see him as a threat if he started challenging their very deeply held beliefs. And ultimately, he had to walk away from this church because being there, uh, the people in the community, couldn't handle the fact that he was there. All the questions that he was asking were making them far too uncomfortable. So he was either forced to say that he was fine, or he couldn't be a part of this community. If you showed any signs of weakness, there were people who would move to the other side of the sanctuary, so to speak. Let me, let me read something that he said from his book. He says this, There's a study that says 42% of Americans will undergo a faith transition at some point in their lives. They'll leave the tradition that they're a part of and move on. This statistic must mean that there are a lot of people in churches wearing masks. They feel alone, but really they aren't. There are others wearing masks too. Behind those disguises, but they just can't find each other. Our churches will never be healthy as long as those experiencing doubt feel they have to hide. In too many churches, the response to doubt and tough questions is shaming, passive rejection, or probes about a possible sin problem in the questioner. All this reaction does is push the doubting away from their faith. It has to stop, or the 42% will never come back. Now, there's a lot of things in this book that I didn't agree with, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that he said in that statement either. But I think that it speaks volumes, does it not? Every single person in here is struggling with something whether that be doubts or fears or sins or temptation or pain, a host of other things. But far too often we mask it. And we don't take the mask off because we're afraid that we'll be met with passive or even active rejection. How did Jesus respond? He washed Judas's feet. He showed him the full extent of his love. And he tells us explicitly that we are called to do the very same thing. Shouldn't it make sense that if we are his body, if we are his hands and his feet, we should be doing what his body did while he was on earth? Loving sinners, making disciples, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. We're not only called to take our own masks off, but also to get in the sewers with others when they take their masks off. And it is not going to be clean. It is going to be messy. When we align ourselves with others, their mess doesn't follow business hours. But that's exactly what Christ has called us to, to be his hands and his feet, loving each other the way that he loves us. Look at verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, if we love one another the way that he loves us, that's how people will know that we are his disciples. 
One more quote from Mike McCarg. He says, If you're a Christian who wonders what to do with someone who's in doubt, consider these words carefully. Love and grace speak loudly. The first and best response to someone whose faith is unraveling is a hug. Apologetics aren't helpful. Neither are scripture references. The first thing a hurting person needs to know is that they're not alone. My path back to God was paved with grace by those who've received my doubt in love. Again, I'm not with him 100%. I absolutely think there's a place for scripture and apologetics, yes. But all of this must be shared in the context of grace and love. And we need to love each other like Christ loves us, with grace and with truth. Final point. Betrayal is part of the deal, but it shouldn't stop us from loving. We've covered the fact that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Judas turns him over for 30 pieces of silver. The thing is, we also, this is a guarantee, we also are going to be betrayed by people in the church. It's going to happen. It is inevitable. Someone in some way is going to betray us. But just like Jesus loved anyway, so should we. Church is a place where, sadly, a lot of us have been hurt. And I say this not as a pastor. I say this as someone who has been deeply hurt in the church before. I know what it's like to be treated poorly in the body of Christ. So I want to say that up front. Some of you know the story of where we were before and some of the things that we experienced. And that was one of the hardest things that we've ever faced in our entire lives. But here's what I want to say to encourage you. Okay, let me, let me give you an analogy. Imagine, imagine that you asked me to paint a picture of my wife. You said, Sway, I want you to paint a picture of my wife. Now, I believe that my wife is the most beautiful girl in the room. Um, but here's the problem. I suck at art. I'm terrible. I am awful. Whether it be drawing, painting, sculpting, choose any medium of art, and I am likely the worst person that you could possibly ask to do anything successfully. I distinctly remember when I was in middle school, our homeschool co-op playing Pictionary. And that being the most stressful thing in my entire 8th grade universe. Okay, uh, I'm there, 12 years old, being asked to draw something off of a card in front of 30 kids and have them guess what I am drawing. Is it a cat? Is it a shark? Is it someone playing hopscotch? And I'm frustrated as I'm painting my stick figure on the board and them having no idea what I'm actually drawing. And I'm getting more and more frustrated with every single minute that's passing by. And eventually I finish my drawing and I'm just standing there awkwardly and maybe I'll circle it a few times and I'll point and I'll be like, And I'm pointing and they're screaming options and none of them are even remotely close until the timer goes, ding, and I take this stupid chalk and I throw it down on the ground. I'm like, this is the dumbest game I've ever played. And I walk off. Okay, that's kind of how it is with me and art. So imagine that you were to ask me to paint a picture of my wife. And you were to give me all the art supplies and you were to put me in a state-of-the-art studio and you'd say, take all the time in the world. Paint a portrait 
But Allison, now, a week later, you come back into the art studio. You see the floor of the art studio covered in half-finished canvases, several of them with holes in them where I've put a foot or a fist through it, Uh, some hanging out the window, a a pile crumpled on the floor, and immediately you're concerned because my hair is pointing in all directions, and there I am rocking back and forth nervously in front of one partially completed canvas. So you'd walk up and you'd see the, the finished product. And this nervous smile would come onto your face and you're sitting there trying to figure out what to say. And then you offer me some words of encouragement like, well, you know, Sway, uh, there is a tremendous market for abstract art. (laughs) And then I, frustrated, would scream at you, it's not abstract, okay? It's a portrait of my wife. It's Allison that I painted on this picture. And then I'd probably punch you and tell you to get out and you'd never want to come to my church again. Just in case you're wondering, we should never do this. It would be a a, a mess. So, what is the point of this? The point is, if you look at my wife, my wife is beautiful. Anyone can see that looking at her. But what if you didn't know her and your only image of her was my painting? You'd be thinking to yourself, you know, Sway seems like a pretty nice guy. It's too bad he's married to Pig Dog. You would think he has a really ugly wife. <laughs> if, if your only image of my wife was my painting you'd think she was but ugly. But here's the thing. My lack of artistic ability, my complete lack of artistic ability, wouldn't change the real thing. Just because I paint a terrible picture of her doesn't mean that she is anything less than beautiful. Sometimes the church does a terrible job of painting a picture of what Christ is actually like. Sometimes the only image that people have of Jesus is the terrible artwork that the church paints. And it makes it seem like Christ is not worth following. But when sinful people mess up a painting of Jesus, it doesn't change the real thing. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is perfectly beautiful in every way. There are going to be times that we, as Christians, paint an awful picture of what Jesus is. And the way that we ought to respond to each other in those moments is the way that Jesus responds to us, by humbly washing feet. Now, I know that there's a lot to be said about what forgiveness looks like and whether certain relationships can actually be mended, and that's another topic for another time. But the question that we have to wrestle with today is, are we first going to respond to the offer of Christ's love for ourselves? And second, as we allow him to get knee deep in our mess and receive that, will we then be a church that does the same thing for each other? Will we be a church that is knee-deep in each other's mess? Will we be a church that's willing to take our mask off and minister to others as they take their masks off.
Are we willing to do the dirty job of being loved and showing love? That is what we must answer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And God, I pray that it has challenged us, convicted us, but also encouraged us. God, I pray that each one of us would come to a place where we accept your love in deep and personal ways, where we know that you know everything about us and you love us just the same. God, you are so good and we do not deserve this kind of love, but I thank you that your love is not based on our goodness, it's based on yours. Help us to rest in that, to receive that, and then, Lord, to reflect that, to be a church that truly, deeply loves one another. God, as we sing this closing song, I pray that your spirit would continue to speak to our hearts, that in the quiet moments, Lord, you would teach us exactly what you want us to learn, that you would call us to action and to obedience, and that we would commit to obeying whatever it is that you lead us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we'll sing our closing song.